Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Cassia and I spoke with Lionel Barber, the editor of the Financial Times. We began by talking about his early career, his stints at the Scotsman and Sunday Times before moving to the Financial Times, um, and then his swift rise to editor in 2005. He also discussed his vision for the newspaper since then, and some pieces that he's worked on and has been particularly proud of recently. Uh, So the Year of the Demagogue, which was published in December 2016, and an interview with Steve Bannon. So Lionel is obviously a, a big media power player in London and beyond, and it was really great to have him on the show. So we're here with Lionel Barber at the offices of DFT. And Lionel, could you start by telling us a bit about your, your early career and how you, how you ended up working in journalism? I was a modern languages and history student, German, majored in German and modern history at Oxford. And then I thought about whether I wanted to be a journalist. wasn't quite sure because my father was a journalist. And I was hesitant about trying to follow in his footsteps had you had bad reviews from him about the industry? No, I had bad reviews about when I tried to write an article <laughs> from him. Uh, he was a, a, an edit, sub-editor uh, and writer. And so I kind of havered and then I thought, you know what, I'm fed up with going to Unilever, ICI, General Electric. I'm not really into business. I, I should do journalism. And I got one offer. And it was on Thompson Regional Newspapers to be trained in Newcastle and then go to Scotland to work on the Scotsman. And that's what I did in the summer, in the uh, winter of 1978. And what was journalism like at that time? We had Max Hastings on the show who talked about his early experience with that. And we were asking him, you know, without rose-tinted goggles, um, we hear so much about the glory days of Fleet Street and so forth. As someone who was there but is also very conscious of the landscape now. What was that period and working as a young journalist at that time like? It was very boozy. I mean, seriously. The drink at lunchtime, going down to the bar was... There were two pubs right outside the Scotsman. The Jingle and Geordie uh, and the... I'll think of it in a minute. But... uh, And so people would regularly have plenty to drink at lunchtime. And then afterwards in the evenings. Uh, it was also dirty because there were typewriters, bits of paper, carbon, uh, and you'd go down to with the printing presses if you were allowed down because it was totally unionised and journalists were usually kept well away from the, uh, uh, the plates. Um, you would... Uh, it was also, of course, you'd come in at a certain time 10 o'clock and you'd finish at half past seven and unless there was something really big you were kind of done then not like today where you're working almost around the clock um, with instant news everything was uh, speeded up compared to then Um, and then there was it was it was also full of smoke because everybody smoked in those days so the whole thing was dirtier slower um, but rather romantic you weren't at the Scotsman for a very long time before you um, won the Young Journalist of the Year award and then moved um, south. Can you talk a little bit about, about that, how you won the award and, and why that meant a, sort of a move um, down to London? Well, it took me about a year or so to get used to reporting, particularly in Scotland because I was an English guy and they just had the referendum, narrowly lost, and the other graduate trainee was Sally Magnuson who was Magnus Magnuson's daughter that's the of mastermind and uh, I've started so I'll finish and she was the doyen of young journalists in, in Scotland so I had to find my own way of you know establishing myself and um, I got a big break when I decided to take up a chance of going to Poland in 1980 and I went with my younger brother who was a student at the time and while I was there in Warsaw the government fell and it was the first solidarity triumph Uh, they toppled the government and the beginnings of the end of communism and there was a crackdown afterwards so I wrote uh, two dispatches from Poland Um, our flat was raided by the secret police uh, after I'd filed the second piece 
Um, and I kind of captured that, and that was part of the offering uh, for the Young Journalists of the Year and British Press Awards. I'd also covered a prison break in Barlini, which I'd actually got slightly wrong on how they'd actually escaped, but that was overlooked by the judges. And then I'd also covered Scotland's first pornography trial. So I had a rather esoteric, a rather sort of exotic offering, and I got the award. And I remember at the time getting about 80 letters of congratulation, including from Winnie Ewing, who was the first MP, Scottish Nationalist MP. And she said, I got this card, and it said, Dear Lionel, I'm so proud that a Scotsman's finally won the Young Journalist of the Year in Britain. And I didn't have the heart to say, well, actually, I'm English. <laughs> um, anyway, as a result of that, the Sunday Times literally gave me an offer to, to join them as a business reporter. So I joined in 1981 and came to London. Was there a, a tension at that time between uh, graduates coming straight into the profession and people who kind of worked up through a, through a craft route, or had that worked its way worked its way out by that point? Uh, people who joined I mean, at 16? First of all, I, I've remembered the name of the pub, so it was the Halfway House. Okay. Halfway House and the Jingle and Geordie. Um, in those days... Journalists, the graduates, there were graduate trainee schemes. So Thompson Regional Newspapers in those days had about between 40 and 44 places. There were that number of, of, of ways, you know. That, that was just Thompson Regional Newspapers. Obviously Mirror Group, Alistair Campbell, who was Tony Blair's spokesman, was the political editor of the Daily Mirror. I mean, he was on that group. And they had others. And then you could also join very small newspapers, there were lots and lots of them. There were there were people who'd left school at 16 and become copy boys. I mean, my father was a copy boy. He left school at 14 in Leeds. Um, and that's the way they got in. But it was beginning to change. But of course, now with the decimation of provincial newspapers, the number of ways that you get in are, are just restrict, massively restricted. So then, um, leaping forward a little bit in time to 1985, which seems to have been sort of a pretty pivotal year, you did several fellowships, yeah. and um, you co-authored a book um, about Reuters. Could you talk a little bit about about that? Well, when I was on the Sunday Times, I, 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 it's worth just pointing out that you know I had a really hard time in Sunday Times because although I was the young journalist of the year, I was by no means the finished article as a reporter. And everybody was at least 15 to 20 years older. And they'd all grown up through the Harold Evans years. Um, and, you know, I, I was a kid, really. Just a, I mean, I thought I, I didn't, I knew I had some things to, to learn, but I didn't realise just how much. So that was quite difficult for about 18 months. But I got through it and developed my writing, also learned how to write headlines and everything. And then I, th I thought I got an offer to, um, because I'd written a, a feature about Reuters news agency going public, one of the former top executives there said he'd like to write a book, a short history of Reuters as it was going public. So I co-authored that. And I applied for the Lawrence Stern Fellowship for the Washington Post in 1984, didn't get it. And they asked me, Ben Bradley, who's the legendary editor, said, hey fella, you know, come back for another time. So I applied the next year, but I'd just joined the FT. But I didn't tell them that I'd applied for the Stern Fellowship. And to my slight surprise, but, you know, I got that. And that was a seminal experience because I literally joined and worked for nearly four months on the Washington Post in 1985. And I came back, as they said, you're about 10 decibels louder. And let's see what you can do now and I did I mean I broke a number of big stories in the in the uh, when I joined when I was at the back at the FT particularly in the Western scandal where two cabinet ministers resigned and at that point 1986 suddenly there were all these newspapers um, growing, uh, being launched Eddie Shah's today slightly before that um, the independent and I got about five job offers, but I didn't take any because the FT said, go to Washington. So I took the job. So by the summer of 
1986. I was back in Washington. And what were those those big bureau chief jobs that you did in in Washington and in Brussels? What's yeah. that? What's it like doing that kind of role? What's uh, it like for you? You kind of find out whether you're you know going to be a colonel or just a private, uh, whether you can really step up and write the big story. There's a lot of pressure because I was covering the end of the Cold War. I covered two presidential campaigns, uh, Dukakis in 88 against Bush, um, and then Bush-Clinton in 92. Uh, you know, it were just, you were on the front page all the time. Remember, this is pre-internet. So it was all about the front page, and it was all about long reads, 2,000 words, often having to get up at 4, 5 in the morning, filed by, you know, midday. No, 11 and to write under deadline pressure that. And then in covering summits, where you don't know what's happened, you've got to have. And Brussels, I, I was went from Washington, it was in the middle of the currency crisis, Maastricht, ERM blowing up, I mean, all-night councils. Um, slightly different type of challenge there, but still front-page stuff. So I was really kind of in the, in the furnace for 12 years. In terms of specifics, um, what does it look like being a bureau chief, you know, stepping up and breaking those big stories? Is it about cultivating contacts or is it about just having an eye for the news or or is it the craft of writing and being able to tell a big story as if it is a big story? Yeah, I think it's all those things, but I think Washington is slightly different from Brussels. In Washington, the news comes at you. Uh, there's television. Uh, you know, every, there's just noise. Um, so the trick there is to see what, pick what is important. Um, for the FT, it specifically will cover the areas that really matter with, with a distinctive flavour, so the interface of business, finance, politics, economics. Um, I covered specialised in national security, um, intelligence, foreign policy, end of Cold War, diplomatic stories, as well as political. I did do some trade stuff. But in there, it's about, if I could say, I mean, it is being able to write and capture the, the moment, give perspective, make it really interesting, um, and then do on-the-ground reporting. I mean, the presidential campaign, you know, you may not quite do uh, the making of a president, but you still you realise that it's part of a bigger narrative and what can you do. In Brussels, it's quite different. It's covering a bureaucracy. I found it, again, for about six, two months or so, it was really different because... You, the news didn't come at you at all. You had to find it out, and you had to stitch things together. And then, in in a way that where things are not instant, you know, big bang, like in Washington, in Brussels, it's more slow and evolutionary. So, just to finish the point, the way I decided to cover it would be like nineteenth-century Europe. So it's the Germans versus the French versus, uh, you know, the British. You know, perfidious Albion, and then small countries against big countries, and it used to drive some people crazy. But people read it, and it worked. And it was also to explain how decisions were made. Mm. How did you find um, American journalism, both uh, observing it and being observed by it? I mean, I've read the piece that you wrote about the Stern Fellowship and how you know editors would have you know very different views on sourcing and, and yeah. things like that. What was what was that part like? Well, the the thing I learned. Um, and I had two stints I've had two stints in America and go back very very often is that there is a rigour about the reporting in America which is quite admirable sometimes it can be a bit ponderous but it is just so uh, um, much more rigorous than I think often in the UK uh, multiple sources uh, independent sourcing uh, it, it can read a bit ponderously sometimes, but it's there. And also, just it's a craft, and there's no sense of the angle, the political angle, in the, in, 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 in the way it's more overt in the UK. Now, I think things have changed a little bit with Trump, and we can talk about that. But in my view, um, that, that professionalism, and also the, in those days, remember, newsrooms, I mean, the, the Post, when I was there in 1985, there were 850 journalists. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, the number of layers of copy editors and stuff like that, you know, in, you don't have that size in, uh, in, in uh, 
So I'm going to skip forward again a little bit to 2005 and sort of take a sort of wider angle view of um, the FT when you when you took over as editor, um, what it was, what position it was in, and your thoughts on what direction you wanted to take it in. Well, I was appointed aged 50. I didn't campaign for the job. I didn't. I didn't expect to get the job. I'd been interviewed in 2001. They decided to give it to uh, another FT journalist. And then as a result of that, I went to New York and ran the American operation. Uh, but when I was appointed, it, we, were, we were a bit adrift. Um, there was some criticism that the FT had lost touch with business. Uh, and, you know, the morale was a bit of a problem. And we got stuck in terms of our growth. What was the size of the operation then? It was 550 journalists. Uh, by the way, we've got slightly more than that now. We've got about 565. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting. And we got more staff from correspondents. But I'll come to how that change was affected. But the real point is, if you get an appointed editor in those circumstances and you've got, you're 50 years old and you don't expect it, then the most important thing to do is say, right, I've got a mandate and this is a one shot and I'm going to really make some changes and you need to have a clear strategy and vision and be able to articulate it. And I didn't. I, I, I said, right, what we're going to be is the paper of globalisation. So we're not going to try and be Britain's business newspaper. We're not going to try and be a solo, solus read. We're going to be a paper for global business and we're going to have a global perspective. We're going to make sure we absolutely maximise the value of our network, foreign correspondence, and I'm going to bring all the experience that I've got, and I've got a lot, you know, with 16 years away out of the country, 10 in America, 6 in Brussels, and that's going to shape the paper, and then I'm going to make some serious changes in terms of people, and that's what we did, and we changed the business model, I said we've got to raise prices, and we're going to come as a subscription business. So your model was already in flux by the time you know 2007, 2008 hit. I mean, what did that shift look like, um, and how was it affected by the financial crisis? Actually, we'd settled finally after havering um, on a business model which which said you're going to have to pay for FT journalism, and we're not going to offer you bits free, bits not as such. I mean, or try and go for artificial divisions we're actually going to charge you for our coverage and certainly for business coverage What we and then we just had to rework and rediscover the model reinvent it and the model initially was you can have 30 and then down to 10 down to 5 articles free and then you'll convert hopefully to subscription having tasted FT journalism and that was working by the time the crisis hit Did you face resistance from trying to push through this big change to a large institution? A little bit, but you know what? I was the man with the plan, so I got appointed editor, and I think by appointing some very, very talented people in the right places, they understood and they wanted being led. They wanted to be led. I mean, obviously, I, the first thing I did was take 50 jobs out, because that was part of the mandate was, well, you're going to have to make some changes. So I said... I will do it, not management consultants, and then from there we will build back up. And we did. We then moved back up to about six hundred, and we invested in digital. So you know, the most important thing was just to persuade people that stay with this. You know, it's like an army war marching through winter. You know, you've got to, you got you're offering a sense of direction, and you know, we have a union. There were some voices that didn't like it, but they knew in the end. We had to go with it. Did you feel that you needed to change the culture of the place? No, I think the FT's culture is actually very uh, sound and solid and people are collaborative. It's a great feature of the FT, the teamwork, where people do cooperate, joint bylines and things. And people are generally, they're, they're nice people. And they want to win, but they also want to win. And I'm a very competitive person. So I said, look, you know, change is inevitable. And at one point I did say, look, you don't do this, we're finished. And I've seen what I've seen in America, 
with news organizations that don't change. I've seen it. You may not have seen it, but I have. I've seen what's happened to the Washington Post, paper that I loved. They were slowly going down. And so it was a maybe encouraging a culture where you just needed to adapt and understand and embrace change. And we've done that, but it hasn't been easy because it's not just one set of changes. We've probably done three to four set of changes and we're still changing to adapt to the digital age. And what does that adaptation look like and, and how has it sort of uh, manifest itself in the past few years in terms of, of pace and, and, and rhythm? Well, one over a period of 12 to 18 months, in one period, we changed more than 300 jobs out of a journalist's 550. That's serious change terms of the shift to digital, rebadging titles, people's roles, we went in terms of change. It means when I came, there were 90 people working on the production side through multiple editions of the newspaper through the night. There are now less than eight. And those jobs, again, have gone, but they've been shifted to people working now on digital production. So it's been a massive shift from newspaper to digital, when I took over about 425, 430,000 global newspaper circulation, 76,000 uh, digital subscriptions, we've now got 750,000 digital subscriptions and 190,000 newspaper. So the whole thing is inverted. The whole way the newsroom operates has been inverted. So it's massive change in order to both produce better digital journalism and support the business model. Could we talk a bit about what uh, editing a newspaper like the FT involves on a day-to-day basis? What would a typical day of yours, if there is such a thing, involve? Yeah. Uh, pro- arrive about uh, 20 to 8, quarters to 8, early. So I will have got up half past 6, read, spent at least 45 minutes or so reading. And then, depending on if I've got a working breakfast, half past nine, chair the news conference where you're essentially setting news priorities with the news editor, who's a very powerful position. It's the job I did 20 years ago. It's the kind of conductor of the orchestra, if you like, in the newsroom. Um, And that meeting would be about 30 to 35 minutes, the morning news conference. We brought it, by the way, earlier throughout. It used to be 11 o'clock when I joined in 1985. Um, then 10.30 we have editorials that's the kind of comment what the, the leader conference as it's called where we're deciding the editorial line on the two or three of the big issues of the day um, I will have often bilateral meetings with the managing editor at least once I'll see him a day because he's in charge of the budget and people people issues take up a lot of time mm. maybe 20% of my time, 25% of my time is devoted to people. Has, has that increased um, since you took over as editor, given that you've, A, increased the staff, but also the turnover and, and the, the profile of the, of the makeup of the staff looks very different um, now? It's more, you know, make, putting people in the right positions. Um, sometimes spending time with people who, in terms of retention, talking about their careers. I mean, you've got to have an open door in this respect. Mm. I, I just finished the day and say then there's the key meeting at 4 o'clock where you're deciding what's going to go on the front page and then what's going to go overnight on the home page of .com um, you know I, I'll be giving speeches sometimes I, I'll be giving um, I, I'll be having a lunch with, with again with journalists come back to people the, the crucial it's crucial about the management of creative talent and do I spend more time now? I think it's probably about the same. I just may spend it more effectively with experience. I remember talking to someone who edited a, a newspaper that I shan't name, but at the end of that very boozy period that you referred to, and he said he spent an enormous amount of his time sending staff to rehab facilities and things like that without you know, drying them out and things. Has that become easier as, as journalism has become a sort of cleaner institute profession? Uh, I, don't, I can say this, that I've never sent anybody to be dried out of the okay. FT. Um, um, he said the, the art of it was deciding whether the, to tell their wives. Uh, no, I, I think I'm, I'm a very uh, a kind of competitive person. Mm. 
and I'm pretty, I'm very ruthless when it comes to maintaining standards. I talked about in the first speech that I gave to the newsroom, I talked about a return to the gold standard. And that's what I believe in, and I apply that to myself just as harshly as anybody else. But at the same time, you've got to understand that sometimes people, there are reasons why people are not performing. Mm -hmm. They could have problems with health, they could have problems at home, marriage, or, I mean, I don't need to go into all that, but there are reasons. So you've got to have a certain empathy and emotional intelligence that if somebody's not performing, it may not be the just because they've screwed up or they're lazy or they've, they're careless. So you need to be careful about that. You need to find, make sure you're in touch with what's going on and people who know other people before making a final judgment. Um, I, think, I think the stress of working in an environment now where it is 24-7, where in, people in Washington, I mean, they're wrung out, wrung out like rags because they're having to... You know, you're getting tweets, not all of which should be, we should be following, but, you know, in the middle of the night and everything being roiled up. It's, it is, it's, it is, I think journalism is, it is more demanding than it was. And also people are having to not just write, but perform in front of camera, do podcasts, all this stuff. I mean, it's just much, it's more, much more exciting, but it's, much, it's more difficult. You talked a little bit about um, your standards and also the fact that when you took over in 2005 you wanted um, the paper to be the paper of globalisation. How do you apply that standard? Um, is it in these meetings or do you go into reading the leaders or, or making sure that um, the news stories have a certain profile? How, how are those standards applied? First of all, I will go in and read anything. So people need to know that. And I will read in, in the news conference, I may pick up something and say, why are we doing this? So that people need to be kept on their toes in that way. Then second, if I'm writing or doing stuff, I will work with reporters where they can see uh, the hand of experience, if you like. I mean, look, I've made plenty of mistakes in my life. I'm not trying to say I'm perfect, but I'm, I'm obviously now, I've got 40 years nearly of experience in journalism. And so on some of the big stories, I'll work with the reporters. I mean, latterly, we, we can talk about that with Martin, the Martin Sorrell investigation. Um, so you do it by demonstration. You do it one-on-one. -on -one. And then I also communicate directly to staff at least twice a year in notes. So I had, we did a weekly update where I single out what's good, and what, where we've done well, and what, what I like. Um, I'll send individual emails to reporters out in the field in the world and then um, every January and every July I will do set out the strategy for the following 12 months and then mid-year assessment. Do you think that a newspaper editor should be a public figure? I mean this, this week or recently Paul Dacre has stepped down who's obviously had a you know, huge influence on the British discourse but has, has kept himself quite restrained where do you think the position of the editor is in terms of going to Davos or you know how how public a role is it depends how you de define public I mean you can go to Davos and I wouldn't regard that as being a particularly public role I mean I'd, I haven't gone every year to Davos there are other places I can meet these people um, business leaders political leaders or whatever um, I think where you have to be careful is if you're giving public speeches or, or um, being overtly public. That's maybe not such a good idea because um, editors have to be seen as, as I think, but certainly for the FT, as fairly neutral figures, um, leaders, but not partisan leaders. That, that that can get you into dangerous territory. So, you know, and I, I think, by the way, certainly with Rupert Murdoch, who I did work for in at the Sunday Times. I mean, if you look at the track record there with editors, those who have taken overtly public roles, as you would define it, have not lasted too long. One thing that has. Um shifted dramatically for a lot of people that we've spoken to has been the grasp that they've had over exactly who their, their readership is and who their audience are. 
how, how um, what sense do you have of the the, F, the typical FT reader if there is one, and um, what work have you sort of put into to refine user profiles and and does that affect your commissioning strategy? The typical FT reader is fairly wealthy, late forties, early fifties, globally minded, interested in the outside world. Um, will be an executive, for example, will be a senior diplomat, um, could be academic, but I mean mainly it's in the business financial community and they're looking for accurate information. Um, weekend is slightly different, they're, they're, they're looking for kind of intellectual stimulation, uh, the esoteric um, arts, culture, but the basic FT reader is, is that kind of fairly sophisticated individual. Now we are making a bigger effort to attract women. Uh, we're making a bigger effort, something of an effort too, to get younger readers because you have to always think about that. But essentially, look, we're interested in having serious-minded people who want accurate information about the intersections of business, finance, economics. People who make or influence decisions in these areas. That's our readership. How does um, how to spend it sort of fit into the wider sort of FT offering? And obviously, a lot of people have real problems with with advertising, and um, I think a lot of people are, are envious um, of the sort of the power that that, that hat still has um, to attract advertisers. Well, it's a crucial uh, segment of our advertising, which is the luxury sector, and companies like Louis Vuitton, uh, Chanel, uh, you know, they they like that magazine, which is unique. Some people find it um, uh, a little de trop, so shall we say, particularly those people who live in North London. Um, you know, How to Spend It is an award-winning magazine. I think the editorial stands, you know, for it on, in its own right. Um, it is meant to be um, very high-end. People in Asia love it. People who've got private wealth, people in America, the Hamptons and stuff, they love it. I always hear that when I'm in America, and you know what? It's it. Some of those magazines have a lot of advertising in them, and you know it helps make our margin. It helps pay for the foreign network, and we've got an outstanding editor. And on a the kind of internal culture piece, I remember I I used to be a stringer for Reuters in Africa, and I remember sometimes thinking that there was a kind of culture where everyone had to like claim they were really interested in grain futures in Ivory Coast or yeah. something like that, but you know possibly wasn't what had motivated them to get into journalism. Do you, where do you stand on that one? Do people, you know, would you, do you think everyone who works for the FT needs to have, you know, a real interest in that kind of nitty financial stuff? Are you looking at good storytellers or what's the... Yeah. For me, the most important quality that anybody who wants to work for the FT must have is curiosity. Right. It's curiosity. I mean... If, if you're and have an inquiring mind, you're not prepared to accept things at face value, and you care about writing and care about storytelling and presentation, then you can learn the finance and grain futures. I mean, I, I had it might have been cocoa futures. I well, think, cocoa yeah. futures are even more interesting. Um, you know, when I joined, when I became a business journalist, I I I, I was actually remember being in Glasgow in 1980 and listening to Sir Keith Joseph who was then the education secretary and he started talking about business and why weren't people interested in wealth creation it was absolutely fan fascinating the process of wealth creation and I worked in Germany for companies and it just thought well actually they're probably right and nobody's much is doing it and that's why I gravitated but I was also looking for a patch something that was my own and the more I then started writing about business, I actually thought it was rather fascinating. Great personal dramas, great you know titans of industry, these people, the manic psychology, the egos and all that stuff. I mean, that's part of it. So if somebody says comes into an interview and you say, well, have you read the FT? No. Well, that interview is not going to last very long. Or if you say, what are you interested? Give me one person you'd like to interview. And they have no idea and it's not a business. They're not... But if people say, look, I'm not an expert, but I'm curious, they've got a really good chance. 
Well, I think we're going to move on to talk about a few um, sort of key pieces that um, we'd like to talk about. The first one, uh, which was published in December of 2016, is um, the Year of the Demagogue. Can you describe the sort of the shape of that piece and how it came about? Well, I had inter- interviewed, uh, um, and actually the interview was late, with Trump was later, but um, we we'd seen two earthquakes. Um, the first was Brexit, which the FT had not really expected. We we looked at this through rational economic lens. But why would you do that? All our, by the way, we we did commission foreign correspondents to come to Britain and write about Britain and they all said it was going to be Brexit which was interesting. FT foreign correspondents. Yeah, yeah, we took five FT foreign correspondents but the kind of English based ones were didn't see it so clearly. Um, anyway, and then obviously Trump got elected in November and I was there at the time and I had this sense of something really important happening are they connected you then had this perspective of the elections next year. Was Brexit going to be a virus in Europe that would spread? And something had happened. So I, I then went up to the magazine. And, you know, sometimes I've written a review of the year. And we have an excellent magazine editor, Alice Fishburne, and then Alec Russell, who's the weekend editor. And they said, well, why don't you should write the essay on the year. And I said, I will, but I need a headline. And I, I, I really, I need to go away because I'm a great person who, believe, who believes in framing the subject before you just dive in. So I then came back and I said, you know what, I think I've got it. It's the year of the demagogue. And it's not just Trump, they are demagogues. And we can write it around that. They really, they like the idea, so that's, what I, that's how it happened. One of the themes that you bring out in um, that piece is kind of the future of um, free trade and wealth inequality. And given, um, you know, your, your readership and, and, and their profile, is there a tension? I mean, essentially, you're, you're telling them things that they don't want to hear, which is that their own wealth creation is part of the problem. Well, I, I've got nothing against wealth creation, let's be clear about that. I, I have some questions about how much money some people seem to think that they are worth in terms of payment. Um, it just, it's hard to compute. It's, it's telephone numbers um, but I also have another thought which is when I became editor I said the FT was the paper of globalisation you know, open minds, open markets free movement of capital labour etc and I think that we were a little bit slow to understand and take seriously the forces anti-globalisation so the um, anti-Wall Street moment, um, the uh, um, the way in which the populism, the beginnings of populism, Nigel Farage, I think we missed him for a year of how important he was going to be and the rise of UKIP. Um, and just then, those left behind by globalisation. Um, peop- communities outside London so I don't think we kind of quite got that. So we made some adjustments in our coverage. So I would say what we're now doing is where the paper of globalization 2.0 sounds a bit cute, but that, that's what I'm, I think we need to, to adjust a bit. Um, you know, we're not hand ringers. I believe in free markets, competitive markets. I don't believe in monopoly capital. And I don't believe in um, people who pay themselves ridiculous amounts of money and for, without proper performance. Moving to the, the Trump interview, um, and I suppose this is a question that applies both to that the demagogue piece and this, how does how does it work, what are the kind of delicacies of coming in as editor onto a place within the newspaper, you know, you have Washington correspondents, you yeah. have writers in the magazine, how do you handle the kind of risk of being perceived as bigfooting an assignment or things like that, how do you, or is that well, just the prerogative of the editor? It, no, I, I, you know, I really don't bigfoot. Um, the fact is I can open doors as editor to get to places other people can't reach. And if you look at the records since I became editor, I didn't do anything for a year. And then I decided that every year I would go somewhere in the world and spend at least 10 days doing a deep dive. I just decided to make that happen. And actually the correspondents really appreciate having the editor. 
spending time with the editor, going in the field, doing interviews, landing big interviews, and then writing with the editor. And uh, so I've done a number of very big interviews over the years, the ch two Chinese premiers, Barack Obama in 2009, then Donald Trump, Rouhani in Iran, Kagame last year in Rwanda, you know, Uribe in Colombia. I mean, that, that, that's, but, but that is not bigfooting. That's actually just being with correspondents and opening doors and then working with them. And they appreciate that. I think they appreciate an editor who still cares about writing and reporting. And on Trump, look, I didn't do it on my own. If I'd done it on my own, that would have been bigfooting. Actually, the, the Washington bureau chief was there and the US managing editor, Gillian Tett, was there. And then I said afterwards, because we'd had a great day, right, now I want to do the 10 most important points of this interview. Let's agree what they are. Now you write it. But on Sunday morning, I want to wake up at 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, and then I'm going to edit it because that's what I want to do I want, because I want this piece to be really good. And then I'll send it back to you and hopefully you think it's good too. So I, I, I you know, I don't think it's book putting. But One of the sort of the points that um, came up a few times in that interview was Trump's view of um, the news and his his ability to sort of speak over it or in fact to kind of ignore it completely and speak directly to a huge audience. Um, and that has a peculiar tension when you're in a room talking to, to three people who are invest, you know, invested um, in the news. What was that like and do you believe that message and 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 how has this cry of fake news affected how you you cover people who you know aren't always telling the truth well first of all Donald Trump is not the first president to appeal over the mainstream press over mm. the heads of the mainstream press I mean Reagan was doing it and Kennedy you mentioned and Kennedy well. and you could argue even to a degree Franklin Roosevelt was doing it in his fireside chats I mean, using, harnessing the power of modern communication. The difference with Trump, of course, is that he's visibly dis uh, and uh, 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 very strongly just despised the mainstream media and also lied um, and told untruths about what the mainstream media and the press has done. Now, it's very partisan. A lot of some newspapers, you know, if you're attacked, by the way, as a reporter, it's very uncomfortable and some have taken the bait because that's what he is actually trying to do. And I talked with Steve Bannon when I, his guru, uh, the nationalist, the American first of Steve Bannon when I interviewed him on stage earlier this year. I mean, he talked about diversionary fire. Because I said, I can't work out, are you, are you trying to deliberately mislead us or just make us so angry? And he said, yeah, that's it. It's diversionary fire. That's what we used to call it in the US Navy. So how do we react when we hear this? Or we well, first of all, Trump is a bit of a bully. I mean, Trump's, he's, he's testing you. He wants to rile you. He wants to throw you off style, off, off, uh, off your stride. So you have to stay up and you have to just push back a bit, but politely, but firmly. And then we are a filter. We're not going to take everything he says at first value. And we're never going to make a factual error, at least on him, as far as we can best try. Because then we don't going to open ourselves up to criticism because in the end for the FT I can't speak for the rest of the media what you read has got to be trusted what do you so, think of you know, the, the I, I, I think there's a way of pushing back what do you think of the Wall Street Journal move of, of publishing the whole transcript of an interview like that in parallel with well we did we, we did publish the full transcript on, okay. in the FT what benefit does that have to the readership and, and how how is that what's the strategy behind that by the way, we, we do that with all the major interviews, mm. um, and that's just to say, dear reader, I mean, you can obviously do that online in a way you couldn't do in the press, in the in print, because you didn't have the space. Yeah. Uh, but then it's to say, look, you can make up your mind. If you really want to read the whole... The, uh, we may have just taken some bits... I, I can't remember. It pretty well was the full transcript, I'm sure. Um, so the, it, it's just a reassurance that if you think we're really filtering hard, or here's read the transcript. 
And on the, you, you mentioned the kind of access that an editor can get or yeah. get get to his reporters. Is there ever a risk of being seduced by that? You know, that yeah, you course. can get taken in. Yeah, how, definitely. How do you? Definitely. Do you need to stay an outsider, basically? No, de- definitely is a risk because you go in and it could be a palace in Tehran, could be the crown prince in Saudi Arabia. That was off the record. That that particular interview that I did with the deputy editor, uh, with the then deputy crown prince bin Salman. Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, of course, because the whole aura of the court, the power, you know, you can, you know, you see, um, there is an attempt to seduce, or even slightly intimidate. I mean, when we did Sechin in St. Petersburg, I mean, he's right-hand man, military intelligence in, in Russia, definitely. Um, so you you have to be able to be what I call inside out. So inside enough that they take you seriously, the contacts that get you in, and then step back. I'm not saying we always got it get it right, but uh, you know I'd rather have the access and deal with the problem. And then also you've got to be honest with yourself that you're not just going to dictate the line. You talk with colleagues. What do they think? And then. I might be the editor, but anything I write goes to another editor, and they can challenge what you're writing and saying. It's a pretty rigorous process. Something that, um, yeah, an idea that is both you can both see with the um, with the Steve Bannon article and also with the Trump article is um, that there's this risk of giving people a platform um, to tell their version of of events, and that these can sometimes just be false and you can call them falsehoods or, or lies or whatever label you ascribe but just by giving them a platform you are amplifying their message you know how do you deal with things like that and also indeed the pushback there was a, a fair amount of pushback with the Steve Bannon article for example mm. but the Steve Bannon article actually was attempting to incorporate the criticism mm. so it was an essay <coughs> again I I was in, partly encouraged to write this because I was going to do it just a diary and then in conversation with one of the senior editors he said well why don't you uh, write an essay on the art of the interview and I thought about it and I thought actually that is quite interesting because there were some people at the FT who who disagreed with me interviewing Steve Bannon on stage at an FT event so I let them have their say I mean I happen to think they're fundamentally wrong because if you're a journalist I don't interview. I wouldn't interview, you know, known killers. I mean, I have interviewed Putin on stage in in uh, in Davos, but would I? I think that was the right thing to do. I mean, you're a journalist. I'm an experienced mm. journalist. I should be able to question and call to account. You know, if you start operating blacklists, you're you're essentially removing your ability to act as a journalist, an inquiring journalist. So I don't think there's any uh, litmus test. That, that it's hard. I don't want to have a political litmus test. Mm. Um, would I interview some crazed pedophile wearing Nazi gear on stage? No. So there is a line, but we, don't, lines, we haven't yeah. reached it but yet. But not, not, not with someone like Bannon, who's, who admitted he wasn't... At, he's, at that time, he was somewhat in disfavour. But he, you know, he represents part of a movement in America, the nativist... America First movement, he still has the channel to the president. Mm. And, you know, he, he helped win an election. You know, without Steve Bannon, arguably Trump might not have won that election. Mm. So he's a legitimate figure to, to, to interview and also to question. Well, I was, I was going to bring up the, the fact that he's a sort of a, a counterpoint, in a way, to your initial mission statement for the FT. Um, his, a lot of his message has been that globalization has failed. You know, how do you, how do you incorporate his um, ideas or sort of um, well, attack his ideas or, or think about what his message is in terms of, of, of what the FT's editorial line is? Well, the, it's not my job as editor and certainly not our journalist's job to just interview people with whom we agree mm. or who agree with us. That would be terrible. Mm. It would be the most boring newspaper of all time. I mean, you know, as a journalist and an interviewer and reporter... The job is to elicit views, challenge views, and then put them in some kind of context. Um, and then in the editorial pages, if necessary, and we do, we have columnists who 
take them apart. Um, and Donald Trump's economic illiteracy, uh, his prejudices, all these, are, it's regularly criticized on the op-ed pages. But as a reporter, you know, you have to go to places where others not necessarily going to venture. And again, you know, I don't regard Iran as a pariah state. Of course, I don't support what they're doing in, uh, in terms of uh, state-sponsored terrorism, what Soleimani is doing in Iraq, this kind of thing. Not at all. But do I get a chance, if I get a chance to go to Iran and interview members of the Revolutionary Guard stroke the, the uh, pre new president, I'm going to do it. Do I approve of Saudi Arabia's human rights record? No. Will I take an interview with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who's spending billions? Yes. As a final question, you know, you've, you've been doing this job as editor for 13 years, you've been working as a journalist your whole career. Is it still fun? Yeah, I have every bit of fun. And the amount of fun, I mean, fun, it was challenging, but the satisfaction that I got working with Madison Marriage and Matt Garahan on the uh, investigation into the circumstances on the resignation of Sir Martin Sorrell at WPP mm. and the fact we broke stories and the amount of attention that that story took uh, up. It went through at least eight or nine drafts. I was involved in all of them. Um, I, I love it. I just love it. Hello, it's us again with a swift update from our lives. Cassia, what have you been up to? I have begun writing the pitch for my third book, which is very exciting. Um, I'm about two thirds of the way through it, and it's a really exciting bit of the project when you start um, sketching things out and imagining how the finished project will look, um, which I love. And can you tell us something about it? Absolutely not. It's top secret at this stage, but when I have more information, of course, I will share it with always take notice. Very exciting. Um, I had a long but very productive uh, meeting with my book editor last week, and we worked out the sort of final steps. So Any I have cuts? Some cuts, yeah, yeah. How many cuts? <laughs> a thousand. No, um, <laughs> a few cuts. Uh, so I have a couple more weeks' work, and then it goes to the copy editor, which is very exciting. Holiday time. Holiday time. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted as ever by me, Simon Aiken. And me, Cassie Sinclair. We have a new producer, who is Nicola Keane. Uh, Zara Hankier handles our social media. Uh, our music is by Jessica Danheiser, and our graphic design is by James Edgar. We're on all manner of social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And our website is alwaystakenotes.com. And if you'd like to contribute to our crowdfunding page, it's on patreon.com slash alwaystakenotes. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you very much. Thank you.